Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Hello, Thinklings listeners. Thanks for being here. We want to give you a quick preview of the episode this week, so if you don't have a full 40 or so minutes, you know what's coming. In our books and business segment, which lasts about 29 minutes, Tim talks about Israel's eschatological enemy, his book. It was reviewed by another scholar, so we talked about that. I talked about The Intellectual Life by Sertiange again, about taking the intellectual life seriously. And Stearns mentioned and talked about the book Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor by D.A. Carson. After that, our main content is Tim talking about the call to ministry from Isaiah 6. And then Andy closes the episode with a devotional from Psalm 73 about changing perspectives. So I hope you enjoy the episode. I uh, hope you enjoy the listen. Thanks for being here. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode number, is it 48? We're at 48. Yep, 48. I should have checked that before we started. 48 yeah. big ones. We can't ever remember what episode we're on. We only go one a week. I mean, it's not that difficult. Well, we should do something special for the 50th. That's like a big <gasps> deal, right? Ooh, You're yeah. right. <gasps> hey, ooh, ooh. T- Tim's oh. face. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? That was like, ooh, ah. So, uh, is the podcast officially, it's, it's now officially older than both of you. Yeah, I'm This 41. happened a few weeks ago, right? <laughs> We're yep. that old. Yeah, actually, it happened in the summer. But like, I just remember mentioning it when it got over my age, when we got to yeah. 30 at the moment I was 29. <sighs> so so Tim's 40, which was the third summer episode, and I'm 41, which is the fourth yeah. summer episode. So, so yeah, we did that. We're well well beyond the... Uh, <laughs> well, well beyond your ages. Okay, so <laughs> maybe we'll do something special for the, for the 50th. I don't know. We'll think about that. Uh, we've got some things we want to do today, like normal, but before we do that, got some announcements for you. So first we have this Instagram account and we've mentioned on the Instagram that when we get to 200 followers, is that what it's called? A follower? I think so. Yes. We're not that old. I'm still waiting for my I'm space. We get to 200 guy. people units on it's Instagram. Followers. It's people followers. Units. People units. 200 accounts, 200 followers on Instagram. We're going to give some things away. The top prize, I'm looking at it right now, it's the old janky lamp that uh, we used here in our dungeon recording studio for a very long time. And uh, we can give that lamp away to someone. We'll also give some things that you might actually want, like some stickers and some mugs and some t-shirts and maybe a book. We, We haven't really decided on all the things we'll give away. But when we get to 200, we will pull names from our Instagram followers. So if you want a giveaway, if you want to be entered to that, you have to follow us on Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We have announcements that go out there uh, pretty much every day of the week. Um, We've got a new social media manager, uh, Sydney, who uh, she makes posts for us like every day. And hopefully you've seen those and enjoyed those. Um, So yeah, but follow us on Instagram. We'll have a giveaway. We have another new thing we're going to start. So announcement number one was Instagram. But wait, there's more. There is more. Announcement number two is we want you to participate in our books and business. Now, that doesn't mean you get to come and record with us, but what we'd like you to do is we'd like you to send us an email at thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. That's our email. We actually have, we have thinklingspod at gmail as well. Uh, we have both of them, but I never look at the other one. So 
Um, so single, don't, don't email the wrong one or we'll never get your one. email. Which could be confusing because a lot of our social media is like think at ThinklingsPod, but our email is ThinklingsPodcast. Uh, so email us, ThinklingsPodcast. We want you to submit your own books in business. So what you need to do, so you read a book. That's number one. You actually have to read a book. So Amen. Know, starts there. Do they have to read it all? They do not have to finish the book, but here's what you say. <laughs> they, they should. Oh, my word, Tim. They should finish the book. <laughs> what, I figure what Tim would be asking is, do they have to buy the book at Faith Bookstore? Oh, my word. No, last yes. week he said that. <laughs> this doesn't count if you don't have a receipt. I'm just kidding. Oh, my I'm word. So you grab a book, you read it, send us a paragraph that's like a synopsis of the book. Give us a, a big thought, a big takeaway that you had. Juicy and then, quote, maybe like a juicy quote. A juicy quote, mm. you can put that in there. And then also add a rating. You know, we have that Thinkling's goodness scale. Give us a rating, one to 10, how many light bulb, you know, units. I don't even, is it light bulbs? Is that even how we? How many lumens? Lumens, yeah. It's like, it's gotta lumens? be lumens. I mean, a 10 lumen light is actually like really, really dim. Not, yeah, really but dim. They, these are special lumens. It doesn't have to make lumens sense. Lumens of the mind. It doesn't, it doesn't have to make perfect sense. Anyway. So <laughs> give us a rating on the Thinkling's Goodness Scale. Like it was a one, it was horrible. You know, well, I guess a one no, is no, still good. No, it's, see, it's a one's good. So if you, can, you can give it a negative if you're like, this is a trashy book. Whoa. Uh, if it's a really good book, like an <gasps> eight, nine, or a 10, s- say something about that. So you need to send us a paragraph of synopsis, a thought, a quote, and a rating. And uh, we might choose yours to feature in our books and business. So we'll read it. We'll give you a shout out and uh, say, hey, thanks. And uh, maybe maybe we'll uh, give you a sticker or something if we mm. if we feature you in books and business. You can stop in to the school, find one of us. We'll give you a, a free Thinkling sticker. And I will I will say uh, that I would like to be able to claim that that is our idea. It's not a listener submitted to us like, hey, you should have other listeners submit books and business. And that person was. Eric Young. So Eric, thank you well done. for that idea. Well done, sir. One of my good friends from college and uh, he, not just from college. He's still a good friend. We were good friends in college. Now we're out of college. Still good friends. So Thanks for on. that clarification. Just, just to clarify. Because all of our listeners needed that. So, well, okay. So if Eric was, if it's his idea, then Eric, you need to send us the first book. You need I, to be the inaugural well, books and him, business. I so. told him it was a good idea and send one in. And he never sent one in. So, oh come on, Eric! You're you're this you're queued up as the first person to be featured here. I know you probably don't read a lot of books, oh. so you just need to get on that. Okay, oh, slam. <laughs> That's a little sh- he we yeah yeah they're they're he friends. knows he knows it's not real shade, <laughs> but they you know they have a they have a young daughter. I think Mia's three now, and they are expecting another. So I know he's Aww. he's busy, but um so yeah yeah Eric thanks for the idea. Send us a books and business. Everyone else. Send us a books and business. I feel like I've said books and business about like 50 times. Yeah, I don't think I need to say it in this episode. It, so, what, on, it, what? That, that's what? like breaking tradition. Oh, on, what? That, oh. on that note, I, we have some Thinkling's business to tend to. Hey, Eric, I got an idea for you. Oh. Read a, a book to your daughter and then submit it to us for books and business. Oh. And it's time for some books and business. Oh, he said it. Okay. So who's going first? I'm going first. Okay, so I'm actually not going to do, well, I'm going to kind of do a book. I'm going to talk about my own book, which this last week I learned that my book was reviewed by a commentator on Isaiah. His last name is... What's the title of your book, Tim? The title of my book is Israel's Eschatological Enemy, 
the identity of the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14, 4 through 21. So if you're wondering what my book's about, read Isaiah 13 and 14, the oracle against Babylon. And um, that's the scripture passage that my, my book concerns. So Williamson has written a commentary, commentaries too, in the ICC, the International Critical Commentary Series in, for Isaiah, uh, chapters, I think, 1 to 6 and then 7 to 12. So that he reviewed my book leads me to believe he might be working on chapters 13 to, I don't know, 23 or something. <laughs> we'll see how it all plays out. But anyway, his review, I thought, might be kind of helpful as we think through different worldview things and how people approach scripture, including how some commentators approach scripture. Overall, I thought it was a kind of a pretty fair review. I'm going to read a little section. In regard to the king of Babylon in chapter 14, and let me give you a little bit of context here. Isaiah 14, 4 says that you will, then you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. Okay, so who is this king of Babylon that the audience is going to take up this proverb against? Right, that's kind of what my book's about, trying to figure out who this person is. In regard to the king of Babylon in chapter 14, Little enumerates 15 features that describe him. He then goes through every possible Assyrian and Babylonian king, as well as Alexander the Great, in order to show that none matches all the criteria. The king must therefore also be an eschatological figure. So he's correctly understood my thesis there. The identity of the king of Babylon is an end times ruler. So just just to throw in a quick idea. So our, if if it's not eschatological, that's what most people are forced to then decide. Right. Is if it's not an eschatological, that's a mouthful. It is. It really is. Eschatological. Eschatological. Just say end times. If it's not an end times person, uh-huh. it has to be a real person historically. Right. So was it Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah. The king of Babylon. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. Do, do people spiritualize it? Yes. So that's one of the chapters I deal with the genre and the purpose sure. of dealing with the genre. That's a good question is, is because a lot of people think it's like a, um, um, a symbolic king representing wicked kings throughout all ages. Hmm. And, and so that is a view. And so I argue against that. Um, because it's a definite king. If you look in the Proverbs, you'll have Proverbs about a king, a king this, a king that, okay? Um, I can't, one's not coming off the top of my head, but they're always indefinite. Well, there'd be no sense. Like that any old be, king. Yeah, not it's just, just any king. A specific one, like an indefinite right. one, just so a that this generic is, king. Yeah, the king of Babylon argues that it's not some proverbial okay. king. Mm-hmm. So good question. Um, Williamson doesn't seem to be sympathetic to that view. He seems to think it's a historical character, at least in his review of my book. That's what I was led to believe. Uh, The king must therefore be an eschatological figure. That's what I argue. Readers may question whether such a literalistic form of reading is appropriate to this poetic form of composition, whether the outcome is wholly plausible. So uh, Williamson obviously doesn't think that I should be interpreting Isaiah 13 and 14 literally. Literally. All right. So Uh. that's telling us about his... um, Worldview hermeneutics and how he's approaching scripture. Uh, let's see here. So he has a parenthetical quote. Whether the suggestion that uh, Isaiah 13, 1 to 14, 27 can really be treated as a compositional unit, unity from the very start, which I do argue that it's all one compositional unit. It's all the oracle against Babylon. Uh, and I'm going to continue reading Williamson. They will also know, especially in regard to Isaiah 13, 17 to 22, that he, he's talking about me, remember, 
he cannot allow himself to contemplate the possibility that a prophecy can have turned out to be partially mistaken. Hmm. Okay, so he's critiquing not necessarily my book. What is he critiquing? He's critiquing my hermeneutics and oh. my theological presuppositions that I'm bringing to the text, that the prophecy cannot be mistaken. Which, so then therefore he would have, he would assume, he would believe that there's a mistake. Exactly. Uh, All right. So that also teaches how he's reading scripture himself, because according to him, a prophecy could be mistaken, which I think really falls apart in Isaiah 40 through 49. It's so all about that God knows the beginning from the end and, and he doesn't make any errors and his plan cannot be thwarted. But anyway, back to Williamson, it just reveals his um, theological presuppositions that a, a, a prophet could mess up, which I always thought was funny too, because the the higher critics are all about uh, a, a later redactor changed yeah. the text. And that's on Isaiah 13 and 14 all the time, because in Isaiah's day, the big superpower was not Babylon. It was Assyria. Babylon was a nobody. And so lots of commentators are like, oh, a later scribe came in and changed it from Assyria to Babylon. All right. Oh. So they say that all the time. And then they go on and say, yeah, and this is a prophecy that, I, that this later Isaiah said, and, <laughs> and then it didn't come true. And I'm like, what? if a redactor changed it from Assyria to Babylon, <laughs> then they left this error in the text that he messed up and didn't prophesy yeah, it correctly. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Huh. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it's just kind of interesting. I just thought I'd throw that out there, something that materialized last week. Uh, yeah. So that's really interesting because it sounds like in a situation like that, you, if you had a chance to talk to Williamson, you guys might go back and forth, mm -hmm. but the, the, it actually wouldn't be decided based on the text. It, it was, it's actually decided ahead of time with your hermeneutics that you use to yeah. approach the text. Right. Your theological presuppositions. And this is where debates really fall apart whenever you're arguing or debating with somebody that's not going to take a high view of scripture, which is why a lot of times those debates are very yeah. okay. futile. I was talking just to uh, Dr. Doug Brown recently about some kind of a debate that Dr. Paul had, and Dr. Paul's involved in this this uh, high-profile debate, but they were going nowhere because the guy rejected the uh, authority of the scriptures. And so hmm. Dr. Paul went all metaphysical on him, and he shrugged his shoulders and was like, whatever. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. He went all metaphysical on him. He does that against many a systematic student as well. <laughs> oh. Cool. Any other comments on that, Tim? No, I'm good. Cool. That's, that's still pretty cool that um, like your your work's being re referenced in some yeah. high-level research. That's really great, man. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to Dr. Uh, Doug Brown about it. That Williamson. Doug Brown, friend of the podcast. Boom. <laughs> Check out those episodes back that we released in February. But uh, Williamson, if he... I don't know. We'll see if he references my book in his commentary, if he's even working on a commentary, which him reading my book led me to believe that he might be. Yeah. Cool. So for my book, I'm going back to, I think, did I talk about this last week? Yeah. Also. This is such a good book, everybody. The you Intellectual just, oh. Life by A.G. Sturteon. Sturteon. We had to feature it at the bookstore, put it, put it on sale or something. It's yeah. so good. So I think last week I commented how he's kind of outlining two different vocations of intellectual life. Like there's someone who is a vocational thinker, like, like a professor. So here's Tim, 
who publishes a book and here's another intellectual who reads it because he's researching to write something of his own and then he's writing an article to review it and like that that's like vocational intellectual life and then there's the other which is the non-vocational like you're not going to do this for the rest of your life and i think i made the point last time that's most college students but for now you are a vocational learner you are a full-time learner in the eyes of the state the irs gives you tax breaks because you're a full-time student so like you should consider yourself that while you're paying thousands of dollars to to learn the so, a- the athletes of the mind the athletes of the such mind such a good phrase that'd be that'd be a sweet uh, this book is old enough that it, that might not be copyrighted Ooh. and we could like throw that on a t-shirt with like no oh, issues oh that would be great that'd be like an athlete of the mind yeah mind athletes <laughs> know, something like that which fun fact the one of the other op- options for the names of this podcast was going to be the Good News Podcast. Oh, but it's not news, N-E-W-S. It's news, N-O-U-S, from the Greek word news, which means mind. So it was going to be like good mind. Mm, that been I thought good. that was super catchy, but eventually we were like, ah, Thinklings is better. So, yeah. okay. Anyway, so here's the quote. We, we kind of got hung up on that last name. We liked the Thinklings from the beginning, but yeah. we were concerned about copyright issues. Once those were resolved... Well, that was what we've always called each other. That's like a banana. Yeah, it was. From the very yeah. beginning, we were thinking. Anyway, sorry. Back okay, to so I'll just read the quote. He's, he's talking about the differences between those two vocations. And here he's talking about, again, that group where it's not a lifelong vocation. It's a temporary time of devotion to the intellectual life. So what I have just said is true of everyone. And just summarize quickly is like the idea of discipline and devotion to the intellectual life. Anyway, so... Uh, What I've just said is true of everyone, but I apply it especially to those who know that they have at their disposal only a part of their life, the least part, in which to give themselves to the labors of the mind. So taking it seriously, looking at the intellectual life as a calling from God, that that applies to both vocations, someone who does it as a full-time intellectual and someone who only does it for a little part of their life. But then he's like, it's more important to take it seriously. If it's Mm. not going to be your whole life, Uh. why they more than others must be men or women consecrated by their vocation. What they cannot spread out over all their years, they must concentrate in a small space. Mm. The special asceticism Mm. and the heroic virtue of the intellectual worker must be their daily portion. But if they consent to this double self offering, I tell them in the name of the, of the God of truth, not to lose courage. Um, so I just, I thought that was a good emphasis again Mm. for college students. Uh, I'm going to read this to my class tomorrow. It's like, because you don't get to devote yourself to this every day of your life, you only have a short season. It highlights the magnitude of taking it seriously now. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a good quote. So have you, are you going to rate that book? You've referenced it twice or are you still working? I'm literally on page eight. Okay. So no writing yet. No, that's fine. That's good. So what you, what you'll find about Sertayange, if you, if you purchase him (laughs) and start reading is he is quite wordy. It's good for, there's a lot of quotables in the book. Oh yeah. That sounded like one right there. He stacks, he stacks. Oh yeah. That, that, that phrase they more than others must be men consecrated by their vocation. That's just a good little quote, but this next one, what they cannot spread out over. Oh no, it's not this one, but I'll read anyway. What they cannot spread out over all their years. They must concentrate in a small space. That's ironic. 
Gotta concentrate on saying the word. Concentrate. <laughs> anyway, so here's here's the here's the the one that I really like: the special asceticism and the heroic mm. virtue of the intellectual worker must be their daily portion. Oh. And then in the next sentence, the double self-offering. What's the double? The one is the special asceticism, and the other is the heroic virtue. Mm-hmm. And that double portion, if you're willing to give that double offering, don't lose courage. Mm. So, but that, the heroic virtue. So athletes of the mind, and then there's mm. the, the special asceticism in the heroic virtue. Man, he's good. Good stuff. But so it, it's wordy. So like I find myself reading like two or three pages and I'm like, what was the point of that? And so I go back and I have to, I think you have to read him slowly. Yeah. I don't what, think you can blaze it. What would be, so you mentioned like reading, reading it slowly. Like sometimes I like reading books with others. I think that's helpful to just yeah. help process. Yeah. That'd be like a good reading with others kind of yep. a book. I think it'd be a great yeah. group study, read it out loud type of a thing, mm-hmm. like we used to do with some books. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I so, one. I mean, I'll give a pre-rating. I think it, I think it's probably a six or a seven. Uh, I think I mentioned there's the like classical, classical education something something website, and th- this is on their list hmm. of books that like, uh, I think it's designed for parents, probably for everyone, but for people thinking about the education of children, it's like this is on the list of like something you should read. Like it's it's uh, it in that sense, in classical education discussions, it's a classic. I think mm-hmm. I don't know. So if somebody's looking to create like their own group of friends that are trying to read deeper, read better. I mean, what book should they read? Would that, I mean, we said that would be a that, good one, but would there be something else maybe that so they'd start with? Or? I really, so I really liked Habit of the, Habits of the Mind by Sire because it laid a good foundation, but he's quoting that all over. Yeah. Aside from he this being, John Henry Newman chapter that was like kind yeah. of a thought, I didn't like that one. So just, just to clarify, this this book by James Sire, Habits of the Mind, quotes Sertayange a lot. A lot. Yeah. I think Habits of Mind might be good. We we went through that together. Yeah. Um, we never yeah. finished it. Yeah. Like most books. Well, <laughs> Well, I think... Um, I did, because I had to for class. <laughs> but it was good. I think Mere Discipleship would be a good one. Oh, see, I never... Uh, I didn't do that do one with some guys. buddies from church from by Alistair McGrath. Um, Here's Endures by Kevin Van Uzer is... Uh, it's a little thinky. It's oh. a little thinky, but I think it's still good. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't think about that one. That, yeah. that could be good. I worked through um, Neil Postman's Musing Ourselves Death with a student, and that was great, and so yeah. was uh, Screwtape Letters. We did both of those, oh. and we read them together and just talked about it, and it was really, it was profitable conversation. But again, you guys out there listening, make your own Thinklings group. Do this. What is our hashtag for that? My Thinklings group? My Thinklings group. And put it on social media. But Nobody has done it yet. I know. <gasps> Challenge. If you're a family, if you're a family, and you're like, hey, we listen to this, snap a picture, throw it on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or email it to us and then we'll post it. If you don't have a social media account, we'll post it on ours. Um, with your permission? We, we, yeah. With, well, I would <laughs> if you assume, send it to us, it's <laughs> granting us permission. Well, I would, yeah. I, I would assume them emailing us the picture would be a form of consent. Sorry. But <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Little. <laughs> always thinking about liability. <laughs> Okay, Stearns, what's, well, what's your book? We're, for my we're running book, long. It's, yeah, a, it's for, not a bad thing. But. For my book today, um, it's a book called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, Life and Reflections of Tom Carson. There's a well-known theologian today named D.A. Carson, and his dad was a pastor up in Canada. 
And so his dad had written him, written some letters and journal article or journal entries. And so what Carson did is he took them and kind of stitched them together in this book. Uh, I was doing a project on a Canadian theologian pastor named T.T. Shields uh, back when I was doing my THM. And my professor had me read this as part of all the stuff I was doing for research. And it was actually a really edifying book. So when you think of like doing research on a historical person, sometimes you get this idea that you're wading through documents. And I, I did all that in Toronto at Jarvis Street Baptist Church. But this book was really helpful. Part of it was that this guy interacted with T.T. Shields, which is the guy I was looking at. But the thing I liked about it is that his dad was just an ordinary pastor and I appreciated his emphasis on that. So today we have sort of a entertainment celebrity culture. And recently in like the last five years, we've seen a lot of celebrity pastors, theologians, you know, having problems and whatnot. And we've sort of idealized them in ways where if we looked at the new Testament and said, what is a new Testament pastor known for? It's probably faithfulness to the word of God, not how many converts or people they have. Anyways, this book, it just dawned on me that it, it really is supporting that. So I'm just going to read one little bit. Um, there's He has a lot of entries of his dad in here. You can just read his journal entries. And so this is uh, Sunday, March 5th, 1961. Uh, awoke at 6.50 a.m., prayer and study, preached, parentheses, poorly, parentheses, from 2 Corinthians 2, 24 people present. Rested, studied, in the evening, 19 present. Preached from Romans 1, 1 through 17, poorly. Saw Mr. F to his home, went to mother's, watched TV with her until 1130, and was not edified. Home, <laughs> went to bed reading my Bible. How much better that is for my soul. Hmm. So here, listen to what he's saying. He's saying, I preached, and both times he preached, he thought he preached badly. But what Carson points out is that even though he thought he didn't do that well and his churches were small and not of large acclaim, he was faithful over the long haul. Mm -hmm. And today it really seems like um, people in the ministry because of social media and because of big ministries and big ministry groups sometimes, and I don't think it's the fault of those groups, but sometimes you get this idea that if I don't have a big church, a big ministry, a big social media footprint, then something is wrong because we're measuring success by our numbers and not by our faithfulness. And so I just, I like that part of this book. And if you haven't read it, I would say it's like a four or a five. It's a good book. It's just, I'm glad I read it. Do you need to, do I need to own it? Eh, maybe. Yeah, it was kind of helpful, but I liked it. I thought it was good and I would recommend it. Awesome. Okay. Uh, we'll jump into the content here. The content in this episode is Tim talking about the call of Isaiah uh, just a couple of things I'm not sure I mentioned earlier. When we talked about the Instagram giveaway, uh, I don't think I mentioned how many followers we're at. We're waiting for 200 to give things away. We're currently at 160. So that means there's only 40 spots left. I mean, I guess if like we went over 200 in the middle of the night and I woke up and there's like 201, we would let that person in. But 202, sorry, you're out. I mean, if you want that lamp. I guess that's not really true either. We... we <laughs> I mean, if we, yeah. Anyway, so we're at 160, so there's not a lot of, of will room there. So don't forget about that. Also, I just want to tease a little bit here. There's some spicy things coming up on the Thinklings podcast. So this is a great time to be, tell all your friends, like, you need to subscribe to this because we're going to have some fun things coming up uh, maybe in the shortcoming days here. So, Ooh, spicy, eh? Spicy. Like I think a, quite spicy. Like on a Scoville rating. Like, what are we talking here? 
We talking uh, like jalapeno? We just like a bell pepper? Uh, I would say ghost pepper. Where are we at here? It's higher than a jalapeno. Okay. Uh, it might be in the habanero range. Ooh, ooh. It's not a ghost pepper. Oof. I mean, maybe it is a ghost pepper. I don't know. Oof. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to make any uh, statements about. <laughs> these these things and be wrong so anyway yes. whatever it is it'll be spicy so with that the content is tim talking from about a call to ministry from isaiah chapter six and then andy will close off the episode with a devotional in psalm 73 about changing perspectives so thanks for being here we'll see you next week i want to have a conversation about the call of isaiah so we're going to be in isaiah chapter six this was a text that I, I said was my life verse. Uh, you know how kind of you get a life verse and it changes. Well, during my teenage years and even my early college years, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8 was my life verse. I just always liked Isaiah's willingness to go and to be God's messenger, where he said, here am I, send me. Um, and so I want to just... I decided to devote a podcast to uh, the call of Isaiah here in Isaiah 6. So I'm going to just uh, kind of work through this text and just um, give you a couple of uh, things to think about, I hope. Uh, so I'm going to just start by reading through the first three verses, or first four verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. In these first four verses, we have the historical setting of the call of Isaiah. It's in the year that King Uzziah died. This would be a very perilous time because a king had died. And so what's the new king going to be like? And we see the Lord, and the Lord is pictured as being very large. The very hem, the, very, the little bit of his uh, robe, it's filling up the temple. In fact, the verb fill occurs three times in this section. So you have the transcendence of God. Um, being emphasized here in these first four verses. And this is kind of a theme in the book of Ezekiel, with Ezekiel's call and Isaiah's call, and that the Lord is, is uh, transcendent. He is all-powerful. The idea of uh, control, omniscience, omnipotence, is, uh, is present in that transcendent view of the Lord. Now I'm going to just keep going, though. In verses 5 through 7, we have a bit of a problem. In the presence of the Lord, Isaiah recognizes his unworthiness. And he states, So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in, a pe in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here, Isaiah recognizes his problem, and that he is sinful. Um, I can't emphasize this enough, and this is something that I've even learned through um, if you believe that the Lord has called you into the ministry, you um, are unworthy. Um, I am not worthy to be the Lord's emissary, to be his messenger. I am a sinner. And the, for the Lord to use me, what do I need to do? I need to have my sin forgiven. I need to have um, a clean 
heart uh, before the Lord. Here's Isaiah, and he recognizes his problem, that he is a a sinner. In verses 6 and 7, his sin is addressed. I'm going to read those verses. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. So we have the sanctification of the messenger here in verses 5 through 7. Uh, A very important point when we think through the call of an individual. They need to be, um, they need to be, I don't want to say sinless, I mean, but they need to have a, uh, a forgiven. They need to be forgiven and they need to be holy before the Lord. Then verses 8 through 10, we have um, the mission that Isaiah is going out on. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And a lot of times I've heard this passage preached on multiple occasions, and this is what I'm getting to. This is the, I've been kind of going through all of this very hastily to get to this next point. Um, That's where they end. And that was where I think I even ended. And I remember when the Lord used this passage in my own life, I think that's where the preacher ended then too. (laughs) This is like the typical testimony. I got called into ministry. Yeah, I got called into the ministry. And then I answered it. Oh, I'm going to go, Lord, send me. Yeah, I'm going to go, Lord. Yeah, I've experienced that. Right. But the text doesn't end there. In fact, the mission is further described by the Lord. And as I work through this, and as you're listening, first of all, I would encourage you to consider uh, what the Lord might have you do with your life. There are There is a great need for laborers uh, in the Lord's mission field. And um, when I say the mission field, I'm speaking very broadly. Right here in this country, you don't need to go overseas. But uh, even here in, in this country, there are regular requests um, that we receive at Faith Baptist Bible College, the Theological Seminary, for uh, pastors. Uh, there's a, a huge need for pastors. I remember when I was 18, I got called by some army recruiter, and um, you know they have their phrases that they try to get people to join the army, or I don't remember if it was army or navy or what the world it was, but um, I told him, yeah, I was, I was going to go to school and I was going to study to be a pastor. And he's like, well, you know, the workforce is really competitive out there. And a lot of guys go to school and they get their bachelor's and it's hard for them to get a, get a job after they're done. And I don't know if he missed the point that I was going into the ministry and to be a pastor. Ooh, competitive job field right there. Real competitive. And then I was just like, well, if there's no churches available, I'll just start one. <laughs> And he's just like, okay. <laughs> and I think that was the end of the conversation. Okay, but um, I would encourage you to consider, are you willing to be like Isaiah and say, here am I, Lord, send me. But um, I want to encourage you to look at the rest of this text and to think through what is it that the Lord might be calling you to. A lot of times we read this verse and we're like, oh, God's going to call me into some fruitful ministry. He's going to use me and a lot of people are going to get saved um, but that's not the mission that Isaiah actually is called to. Uh, listen to this in verse 9. And he said, this is God speaking now, and God said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. 
Okay, if you didn't catch it, that's not a positive message. That's basically him saying, go, proclaim the message, and, and proclaim it again, and proclaim it again. And nobody's going to listen, and they're not going to like you, and they're not going to repent. They're not going to come back to me. I mean, who signs up for this kind of a mission? Okay, who wants to be this kind of a messenger? I don't know. I'd rather have a lot of people love me and repent of their sin and turn to the Lord and, and uh, that the Lord would use me in some great ministry in some marvelous way. But that's not the mission that Isaiah was commissioned to do. His mission was to go and to faithfully proclaim the message even though nobody was going to believe in. Now, sometimes we might think, oh, yeah, you know, when we start a mission or start to work, it can be really hard. And, um, but a lot of times after it's really hard for a while, then things kind of improve. And, uh, you know, the Lord begins to work in hearts and people get convicted and they, they turn around. Well, what does it say? How long is Isaiah going to have to continue this mission? Look at verse 11. In verse 11, then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, and until the cities are, wa- are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming, as a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. So the answer here is how long does he continue to proclaim this message? Well, until the land and everybody is destroyed. That's how long. In other words, there's no repentance. You understand that? He faithfully proclaims the message until God's judgment comes. Faithfully proclaims the message until God's judgment comes. And, um, and so this is a passage that's meant a lot to me, not just in, especially in my later years, not just in, okay, I need to be willing to be the Lord's messenger. Here am I, Lord, send me. But I also need to be willing to be the Lord's messenger for whatever that mission might be. And if it's not a great mission, if it's a, a mission where I just need to faithfully proclaim the truth, and um, be faithful to the Lord and faithful to his mission? Well, if I've done that, then my ministry is successful. We evaluate success based upon results. God doesn't evaluate a ministry that way. He bases it upon faithfulness. And I would encourage you, base your ministry, base your profitability upon your faithfulness, not upon your uh, results. And I do want to exhort you as a listener. Maybe you're a college student. Maybe you're looking at some kind of a position or a business degree or something. Okay, Uh, We need to have the vision of Isaiah. Isaiah did not focus upon a kingdom here on earth. He looked forward to a heavenly kingdom, a heavenly city. Uh, This is uh, described in Hebrews 11. Um, Isaiah was likely the prophet that was sawn in two. And his fruit is an eternal fruit. It's in an eternal city. It's in a 
an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away. And I would encourage you to consider um, what kind of, uh, um, what God might do through you. And perhaps there's some even listening, and, and this is an area where I haven't really discussed with people or listeners a lot, but perhaps you even have a, a fruitful job. You're making a lot of money. You're, you're already settled in. Well, maybe God could still use you. Maybe what you need to do is to let go of that fruitful job. Maybe you need to um, uh, set your sight upon that kingdom, that city that is eternal, and and leave that profitable position, and and join and go into the ministry. Be that pastor. Be that faithful communicator. Be willing to say, like Isaiah, here am I, send me. Do you guys, uh, what do you guys think about that? Any input or comments? Yeah, I think what's interesting about that passage is, I mean, you, you brought out the, the, the point that most people get excited about ministry because they think that they're going to get to be successful, but the, their definition of success is dependent on something that's completely out of their control which is the the response of the people to whom they're ministering and but there there's there's little uh I'll say it this way there's little seeds in this passage about uh the remnant mm-hmm. you know or that there is a you know well you could kind of take it a couple different ways and I I defer to your interpretation but how um very rarely in the history of Israel did the majority of people listen to the message of God and the church in Israel are not the same thing. But that's also true <laughs> in our culture today. Not, I mean, think about the gospel as a universal message to all peoples, but there is never going to be a time when the majority of people in this world believe. That's going to be a future thing. Right. And judgment has happened to people who have not believed. Mm-hmm. And the only time there will be a majority of believers when the neighbor, you don't have to teach the truth to your neighbor anymore, is when we're in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And we're not there yet. Uh, But so as a minister, it's it's there, but I don't know if it's fair to to really bring out the point that maybe is emphasized by the the, the text. But it is true in ministry that you're probably never going to have lots of people listen to you. And a good illustration of this in the Gospels is with the soils, which is, it's not in all four of the Gospels, but it's in multiple of the Gospels, where it does talk about how the word of the messenger, the sower of the seed, how how that seed is not received in a lot of people. And and I had a prof in, in seminary who's like, okay, so you sow and you sow and you sow and you sow and you sow, and guess what? a quarter of the seeds you sow are going to actually bring fruit. And you can look at that in a discouraging way, which is, man, most of the work I'm doing in evangelism isn't working. But that's not because you're doing something wrong. That's because of the people that you're ministering to. That's how hearts receive the word. Mm -hmm. Three out of the four soils, it doesn't work. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, but then he applied it in a positive sense, though. That should motivate you to evangelize. Because if even if one of every four is good soil, which, you know, it's 
correlation isn't causation. It's not like, well, I preached the gospel to, to four people, so one of them's going to get saved. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. But if you sow widely, you're going to reap widely. And that, that was his, his point. And so, um, but yeah, kind of the, that, that's what ministry is, is realizing that most people aren't going to listen. Yeah, and that's a good uh, addition there. There is the concept of the remnant in Isaiah chapter 6 as well. I did not make a big point of that, so thanks for bringing that up. In verse 13, a tenth will remain in the land. And so as we think through, you know, if you have a church, there's 100 people, well, I mean, we, don't, we aren't good with numbers a lot of times. Think about that, a tenth, there's only 10 left. But the text doesn't end there, because then it says, and they'll return and be for consuming. So the idea is that, there's the 10 left, and it's like, well, that's pretty bad. But now there's still some more consuming. There's even more people that are lost or consumed. They're burnt. They're destroyed. He's using the illustration of the tree and how it burns. And so the remnant is a very small number. But Isaiah, it's not like Isaiah didn't have anybody follow him or believe him or repent. He did. In fact, in Isaiah 8, he talks about how he had some disciples himself so Isaiah did have a ministry that made a, an impact, but it did not bring across or about some major repentance. And it would have been that he was the pastor of the church of maybe 50 or 100 and not the pastor of the church of, you know, 20,000 or whatever. And, that, and that's by way of illustration. We're not saying that he was a pastor of a church. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But just one more thought there is, to God, the, the quantity is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. It's the quality of the worship, and I just a passage that I think should be for should be philosophically forming for us in ministry is Luke fifteen, and when he talks about say you have a hundred sheep, and if you're a pastor or a minister, that's like really close to a one to one correspondence. Okay, yeah, I'm a shepherd. I've got sheep in my church. Say you've got a hundred, and there's one of them that needs to repent, and he says very clearly. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who do not need repentance. You could have a huge church, but the people don't walk in repentance and don't walk in the Spirit, and it looks really successful on the outside. But what does God think? No, you need to be discipling your church to walk in the Spirit, and that's the barometer of success. Mm -hmm. It's the quality of the walk of their faith. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've said before, I've, I've, I've said this to pastoral students, I'll give you, uh, so what's 500 minus 5? 495. 495. I'll give you a church of 495 people, and then I'll pastor five. And my five are repenting, and your 495 don't need repentance. Which church is better? Five. One out of every hundred, and it's it's a really simple concept. But once you think about ministry that way, you're like, ooh, maybe we should emphasize sanctification more. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's also interesting in the sower's parable. Uh, in First Corinthians, Paul, when they're having the divisions, Paul says, "I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth," and so. When you look at your church and you see growth and you take that as I've succeeded, you're actually taking credit for what God's done. Now you can what can you what can you say I've done? Luke sixteen ten says one who is faithful, which is what you were talking about earlier, 
faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And then it goes on to say dishonest in little and dishonest in much. But I think that the key point of Scripture is faithfulness. And today in church, it, I would say if you're in ministry, you're tempted to measure your ministry this way. But I would even say just you sitting in church, you're tempted to look at your church and say, how many people, how big is our building, how nice is it, are we growing? And you're, you're tempted to judge your church or the church down the road on those standards. And I think faithfulness and repenting and growth and sanctification are better ways to judge that. And I think it's so interesting, Tim. I mean, if you, if you had a, um, a list of 10 churches that needed pastors and you called the school and said, here's a list, tell your pastoral majors. And you had a church that had that as it's like, these people are never going to listen to you. They're super obstinate, blah, blah, blah. No pastoral majors. Like I'm signing up to go to that church. But what did Isaiah do to please the Lord? He was consistent in that situation. And that was honoring to him. Okay. One last thought before we, we wrap it up on that thought. In fact, do you know that there, there probably are a lot of churches just like that? And, and I'm going to actually, I think I'm quoting Isaiah. You sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. And the reason why we have churches like that today is that we've emphasized the wrong things. If church is entertaining, if church is only evangelistic and it's not, hey, are you growing more to be like Christ? Guess what won't happen? You might have people doing a lot of great things. But they themselves, are they really like Jesus? Almost like the purpose of the pastors to edify the saints. But when we stop emphasizing that aspect of ministry, and it's about the gathering of the number instead of the depth of the convert, you reap the wind, you sow the whirlwind, and you fast forward that 50, 100, X amount of years, you have people sitting in those pews who could have been there for decades and have not become any inch closer to the character of Jesus. And, and they get curmudgeon <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I speak in generalities because every church is its own organism. But I think ministry in America has taken on a flavor that has maybe led to less desirable ministry roles as a pastor looks at them because sanctification wasn't emphasized. And I, you know, I don't know if I could prove that ever, but I, I just say on, a, on a, a very micro level, if, if that is the issue in a church, that's because the main wind in the sail of that church is not the Spirit of God. And the pastor's job is to change that. Never get into a competition with the world and being entertaining. You'll always lose. You'll always lose. So here's our final thought from God's Word today. In Psalm 73, uh, the writer of the psalm is Asaph. And Asaph is having a bad day. And so this is a pretty famous psalm. Many of you have probably read this before. It's If you haven't, you're in for it. it this thing is great. Um, but it's going to be a quick summary of what's going on here. He starts off saying, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are in pure in heart. 
But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So, so Asaph is, is looking at his life, and he's saying, I'm living for God, and my life is hard. And then he looks out at the wicked, and he says, wait a second, they're not living for God, and their lives are easy. And I'm, if you look in the whole rest of, uh, from verses 4 down to uh, 12, he just, he paints this picture of the wicked's life. It says in verse 4, they have no pain until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now today, fat's not a compliment. But back then, if you were in a, a situation where you need food and you had a lot of food, you'd be fat, and that's like a, that's like a big deal. You're, you're making it well. They, they get away with stuff. They're rude, and they don't have to be afraid, and they're evil, and they're wicked. And in verse 11, they say, how can God know? And they're basically saying, God doesn't even see what I do. And in 13, Asaph realizes, he, sa- he says this, he says, In vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent innocence. He's saying, I've been living for God and being holy for, va- for, for no reason. Look at me. I'm doing this, and what has it gotten me? It's gotten me nothing. All day long I'm stricken. I'm rebuked every morning. And in 15, he actually realized, but at this point he's looking back saying that was wrong to think that way, and he rightly says, if I had spoken this way, I would have betrayed an entire generation of your children. So when, when life's going bad and you're frustrated about the Lord and how he's treating you, be careful. Pray, think, talk with a friend, talk with a pastor. Uh, but if you're, if you're not careful with those testimonies, you could mislead people into linking the wrong thing about God. Now, the end of this psalm is different. I'm going to skip all the way to the end. Verse uh, 23 There's a huge change now. He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. He's talking about the presence of God here. God's present. In verse 24, he says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you'll receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on this earth I desire beside you. My heart, my flesh may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. Verse 28 says, for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. What changed? He's having this horrible day. He's looking at the wicked. The wicked are just living life great, and he's having a, a horrible life. And then at the end, he's like, no, God is my portion. I, life is good. I'm content. What changed? Verse 16, he says, I thought, how to understand this? It seems a wearisome task to me. He couldn't figure it out. But then in verse 17, everything changes. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. For Asaph, when he was looking at the world, and only the world, when he was looking at the earth, life didn't make sense. He wasn't getting paid back for the good things he did, and the wicked weren't getting paid back for the evil things they were doing. But when he shifted from looking at the earth to looking to eternity, and seeing what God would do in the end, he realized God will judge the wicked in the end, and God will take care of me. And God is good. So when you walk through a situation, and it's difficult and sad and depressing, and you wonder why, the solution isn't for your situation to change. Your solution is to go to the sanctuary of the Lord and know his character and know that he holds the future in his hands, and you can trust him. Why? Verse 1, truly God is good.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.